absolute make or break moment for the cosmos, like 100%, because you've got Adam just now reducing inflation, you've got Noble USDC, and you've got DYDX incentives kicking off. If this isn't enough to get people over to that godforsaken ecosystem, like I literally don't know what will. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that like Dan and I, you believe the future of finance is on the blockchain. And we're excited that London is becoming a global hub for blockchain innovation and institutional adoption of digital assets. That's why we're pumped to host the 2024 Digital Asset Summit in London this March. Don't miss your chance to get ahead of the curve. Later in this episode, we'll tell you how you can save 20% off on your ticket. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. We have an awesome interview lined up today with a couple members from the BlockWorks research team, Ren and Zero X Pibbles. But quick reminders, these will be in the show notes. Get your ticket to the Digital Asset Summit in London in March of next year. And also be sure to check out blockworksresearch.com where you can use code Zero X Research 10 for 10% off of your annual subscription. Uh, Dan, do you want to kick off the episode this week with some movers and losers? Yeah, for sure. So got some interesting movers this week. We'll start with MakerDAO, who actually has a revenue all-time high, according to the stats collected by DeFi Llama. Uh, so according to this data, they're doing about 500K in daily revenue, which is which is pretty insane. Uh, and again, in the heat of the bear market, that seems a little bit crazy to think uh, on the surface. But when you look into what MakerDAO has been doing over the past few months, you, know, you start to uncover that they've spent a lot of time in RWA. So it's really no surprise to any listeners of this podcast. Uh, and then given the expansion of that, you know that that kind of makes sense. But one interesting thing I've, I found was at the peak of the last bull run, MakerDAO's die outstanding or the amount of borrowed die was at an all time high around nine 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 and a half billion. And right now that's only around four and a half billion. So it's like a forty percent lower than what it was at the peak. Yet it's making more revenue. Uh, so that's a kind of an interesting takeaway. Uh, and honestly, I want to dig a little deeper into that because if that's true, then that's the, it really is kind of like MakerDAO doing more with less. Um, you know, I think a lot of that can be powered by just the the 5% yield that's coming through these RWAs. So that's, that's definitely uh, an interesting takeaway on the surface level. And because of that, I think the actual token itself has had this really interesting negative correlation to the rest of the market where it's almost been this like flight to quality. And it's like, oh, you know, we see a market pullback. Everyone's like, ah, okay, back into maker. Like this is the safe RWA yield play. And then, you know, they get some positive catalyst and everybody wants to pile back into the the next major token running. Yeah, I think it's really nice seeing a protocol's revenue at all-time high in the death of the bear market. One thing I'd be cognizant of is that eventually, hopefully, as interest rates start coming down again, and maybe all of us might be able to buy a house on a mortgage sometime in the future, MakerDAO's RWA yields realistically uh, probably come down too. And I'd just be worried that in terms of their RWA portfolio, they don't start sort of going out further on the risk curve to sort of like chase higher yields in order to like sort of maintain. Because I think a lot of people are a bit, I'm not sure spoiled is a good word, but I think it's an apt word to use here by like this like guaranteed like 5% yield that's being funded by US treasuries. But once the interest rate comes down, right, if you want to find like the same 5% yield, you're going to need to go a lot further out on the risk curve. And generally that doesn't end well for people who chases yield. So yeah, just be cognizant of that. Yeah, and DeFi Llama, of course, absolutely goaded, but uh, it is notoriously hard to calculate 
the RWA yield, just given the off-chain, on-chain elements and using different service providers, like each vault is like its own beast. Uh, so I do need to look a little deeper into exactly how they're calculating it. But again, the Zero X and GMI and the rest of the crew over at DeFi Llama always does a kick-ass job. So would expect this to be definitely close to right. Um, moving on, we got another mover this week. I actually have three. So the second one is going to be Vertex. The token uh, launched a couple weeks ago and then did an LBA to kind of find a natural market price with a, without the true market volatility. Um, and the trading has been live for about a week now. So it's been interesting to watch that kind of develop and the LBA seems to have worked super well for the protocol, right? So they launched at about 30 cents, fell down to about 20 or so cents, and now it's up to about 50 cents, which seems to be working well. Um, I, I think the, Sam, you're kind of our in-house uh, Vertex expert, so I, I don't want to start rambling too much here. I'll, I'll kind of throw things over to you to talk a bit about Vertex and uh, where they're at right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talked about it a little bit on last week's episode. So if you want like a more in-depth overview, I'd definitely go go back to that one and give it a listen. But I was just mostly surprised to see volume over the weekend, which is typically a lower volume period. It's basically three to four X from anywhere from 200 to 400 million a day, all the way up to, you know, one and a half billion on Monday, November 27th, as we're recording. So that's just wild. I mean, especially considering the amount of open interest, it's only like 10 to 15 million versus, you know, one and a half billion dollars of, of settled volume. So I don't really know what to make of this. I don't know if it's market makers kind of, you know, juicing the volume numbers, uh, but nevertheless, 30 to 50% of those fees paid are going to be going to stakers every single week. So I expect this to pretty much continue. And it's honestly a very reflexive system in the sense that as the VRTX token price goes up, so does the dollar value of the incentives. And then people want to pay more in fees so that it increases yield. But it also goes reflexive the other way around as well. So we're about to see that with DYDX, which I'm sure we'll talk about briefly a little bit later. But nevertheless, that was definitely a, a very good play for those who traded on Vertex in the early days. Yeah, just to add on a bit there, in terms of sort of volume divided by open interest, someone posted a table on Twitter for Vertex. 24-hour volume divided by 24-hour open interest is at 129x. Um, for DYDX, it's at 2.33x. Um, for GMX, it's at 0.77x. So, you know, it's like a it's a pretty big difference <laughs> compared to like all of these other perp dexes. And as Sam mentioned, right, there's like a lot of catalysts going for it. Um, I think tomorrow, Tuesday, the staking APR will start displaying on... The protocol, um, you have the ARB sort of fee rebates right now. But yeah, I, I think on paper, it looks good for now just because like you being this, being able to say that you have more volume than UIDX is like a pretty big move, but it just doesn't look that organic to me for now. Yeah, I think Vertex is awesome and I think it's going to continue to eat GMX's lunch. And then another really neat thing with it is the Elixir integration. So I just think the model is going to be a lot more interesting and reflexive to the upside. Definitely one to keep an eye on, but uh, we'll kick things over to our third and final mover of the week, which is honestly just gaming tokens as a whole. That's been a hot narrative for a while now. Uh, all of your favorite VCs have been making their marketing push about it. And honestly, the games are trending in the right direction. We did a segment uh, in Hot Seat Cool Throne last week, kind of covering some of the interesting games. So again, referring, referring back to uh, last week, it was a great episode. Check it out. But uh, so as far as movers go, you know, Prime has been killing it. Ori has been killing it. ILV, 
um, has been killing it as well. And those games are getting a little interesting. And I feel like gaming, crypto gaming kind of segments people into two camps where it's either this is the worst idea I've ever seen in my life or this is going to be like, you know, the second coming of Christ in the, in, for the crypto market. And so I'm curious to get everyone's take on it. We had a, a nice Sunday night debate uh, in our in our group chat um, the other day. So I'm curious to get your take on, you know, are you do you think crypto gaming is here to stay is going to work or is this just like the next narrative that needs to get chased? I like the gaming tokens. I think something that's pretty interesting about all three of the ones we're talking about is they're all essentially up like 3x of the bottom in the past few months. And this has coincided with the actual games going live. So like Alluvium's going live on the Epic Games Store tomorrow. Arroy also got listed on the Epic Games Store and that game went live, I think, last week. And then you have Prime showing off all this colony stuff and they've had the trading card game live. Um, so I think these tokens can really be bear market proof if they find a sticky enough user base and what will be more interesting to track on these tokens is what the actual usage metrics look like and you know the average playtime per gamer and how the momentum carries on yeah um i'll say that i think traditionally there's been like two sort of large type of game developers one is like the large like triple a studios that are able to shut out like 10 million or like 100 million on like one triple a title and then on the other hand you have sort of like these indie game developers who are able to launch like super fun slightly more niche games probably the most prominent example is like stardew valley he's just one man grinding for like six years on building an incredible game uh, i feel like crypto gaming gaming on blockchain whatever the term is kind of enables that indie side of developers a lot more in terms of like bootstrapping like their game economy or like the game network effects more so for like games with like assets that have tangible value or like game with like multiplayer modes just from sort of like the token incentive perspective but also i think mobile games are like a huge thing in asia like it's honestly probably as big as gambling the number of like degenerate like 18 year olds who like spend half their lives in like a pc cafe or like a land is like pretty incredible in china and the government has had to go to like pretty drastic means to cut down on like gaming activity so honestly i i, I wouldn't fade gaming like even if it doesn't make any sense to like put on the blockchain and if you see like zero reason for it to be on the blockchain i think overall it still does really really well Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think the tokens are going to perform really well. I don't think we'll get a game that's like widespread and, you know, hits the mainstream to the point to where like mom and dad are playing it. But I do think the tokens will do well because we don't really need that much, you know, new demand in order to make tokens go up. So bullish on the tokens, not really bullish on the quality of games. I did see something interesting earlier today with Prime and I haven't looked into it super deeply, but it looked like they're planning on doing something that, ties token emissions to the amount of prime that's actually sunk on like different cosmetics collectibles etc i think that's a really great idea to not have a fixed supply schedule for a game and actually tie it to the amount of token demand that you're seeing at that given moment in time versus trying to just you know hard set the the inflation rate and just hoping that everything times up well like i think it makes a lot of sense to to tie that stuff to new players 
Yeah, I love the idea of like dynamic incentives and not just saying like a thousand tokens each month, here you go, whatever happens, happens. I think that was very like a Gen 1 DeFi, you know, strategy because it was easy to code and you know, like that's kind of the way you start and then you build things and it um, kind of just, uh, you know, build on top of and, and rework these different things and just keep iterating. So definitely excited on that dynamic inflation idea as well. The other thing, you know, we mentioned Prime and, and their colony game. This is like this interesting intersection of AI and gaming which I don't know if this will be interesting at all, but like I could see like a game where you like control AI agents to like go do things. Like, I don't know that, that definitely seems like it has potential. And they're saying that colony is going to be a fully multiplayer game, which is really, really cool. And there's even been clips uh, or quotes from some of the developers saying, you know, we're going to try to like leave some of the code to be written by the AI engine, which is like, okay, like a self-progressing game with AI agents, like, that's definitely interesting. And, um, you know, Axie Infinity was kind of the first game to popularize the play to earn model, which, you know, has since been proven to be a little bit gimmicky and, you know, quite frankly, a bit silly. Uh, but I think that you could kind of see that same narrative, that same style of narrative forming with this AI and gaming overlap and like having a game where you're controlling different agents. Like it sounds a little gimmicky as well, but it could. It, I could see it being ending up being something kind of fun, honestly, um, and kind of like creating this little colony. And and uh, I don't know, like the clips. I was calling them like you get these little AI ants you get to control, and like being in a colony. Like I don't know, it starts to make sense to me. I think my bet there with like autonomous AI agents in games is that human loneliness is like an all-time high across like all age ranges and i think like a very natural extension of like or a very natural use of ai is sort of like having a buddy you can talk to right um but i think rather than having a buddy that you can talk to in like like siri or like google voice on your phone i think it makes a lot more sense in a gamified setting and so that's kind of my thesis around gaming and ai like humans are lonely you'll be able to like not be so lonely in a gamified settings with ai agents and maybe like some actual real life friends i mean gaming is social too right like the only games i play nowadays is strictly to talk to my friends like it's just fun to hang out online on a sunday afternoon or something so i can definitely see that forming um that's a good flag right it's a little bit depressing when you start to kind of back up and think about it but um for the biggest loser this week we have uh tornado cash's native token it was delisted from binance i'm sure this is some I don't know, but I would think this is some fallout from the whole CZ lawsuit uh, and the settlement of about $4 billion. Um, you know, I think delisting what is probably the U.S. government's least favorite asset is was probably somewhere on the, on the fine print there. But I don't know if you guys have any more thoughts here. Nah, let's move over to Hot Seat Cool Throne. Uh, all right, let's do a little Hot Seat Cool Throne then. And uh, before we jump into that, I'll give a quick shout out to Das London here. Uh, it's definitely going to be a super exciting conference. We have a great speaker lineup listed with names uh, like some of the some of the companies like Onyx and which is J.P. Morgan's Crypto Arm, Morgan Creek, Framework Ventures, Wintermute, Stani from Aave is coming, and now that they've rebranded, I'm pretty excited to see kind of what their new vision is and how that ties into this narrative of inst institutionalizing the industry. Uh, so that's going to be in London this March. Be sure to come join us. Uh, some people from our team will be there. Some people from the rest of the Blockworks crew will be there as well. I uh, would love to grab a pint with you. So be sure to shoot Samurai a DM if that is going to be you. Uh, but moving on to a little hot seat, cool throne. Ren, I'll kick it over to you to kick us off. Yeah, sure. So I got CCTP in the cool throne this week on 
November 28th, which is tomorrow uh, for us, but it's going to be yesterday when you're listening to this podcast, CCTP will be going live on Nobo. Uh, for those who are not too familiar, Nobo is a general asset issuance chain within the Cosmos ecosystem, and it will allow individuals to sort of mint USCC and utilize IBC to transfer that IB, uh, that USCC across like the Cosmos ecosystem. One of the largest beneficiaries of CCTP and Nobo will be DYDX. Um, since DYDX is an app chain, users will basically be able to mint native USDC directly on DYDX and more importantly, transfer that from various uh, Ethereum-based chains such as Ethereum itself, Arbitrum, Base, and Optimism. Um, CCTP is also live on Solana DevNet right now. And I think there's an increasing like narrative taking place around the death of liquidity-based bridges. We're starting to see that already, even at the start of this year. Um, bridges such as like Stargate had their volumes like sharply fall off. Obviously, it was like pretty influenced by a potential airdrop farming opportunity. Um, Synapse has definitely not been doing so well, but just CCTP and sort of intent-based bridges have been taking liquidity-based bridges market share. So, for example, on Socket, which is a bridge aggregator, CCTP share has been steadily increasing from like zero a few months ago to 25% today. And Across is also a bridge whose volume has been absolutely rocketing. I think they just overtook Stargate volume, Stargate bridge volume um, today, actually. And so how an intense bridge work is basically someone submits an intent. I want to bridge 1,000 USDC from chain A to chain B some filler or relayer comes in and funds the liquidity and then after a while they'll get paid once like you've verified that you've received the tokens on the source chain instead of like a liquidity based model where the bridge sort of acts as like a cross chain deck slash amm and sure you get like kind of like instant liquidity but a lot of the time you get a lot worse execution and so what a lot of these intense space bridges, sobers or relayers are probably going to do is they'll fund the liquidity and then they'll probably use CCTP to sort of transfer that risk on the back and to like to refill their inventory. And I think that's just, just a very natural progression. People are really sick of like bridges getting hacked. Probably like top five of the crypto hacks are bridges. Today, billions and billions of dollars have been lost. And so intense space bridges, as much as like I hate the buzzword, like intense are probably going to be the future especially when combined with cctp and if you're saying like cctp is like a centralized service piece of infrastructure i i really don't think that's the worst thing in the world to be honest what does this mean for all non-intense based bridging models i think you're gonna get cucked like the only real bridges with like real liquidity will probably be like smart contract like the smart contract bridge for rollups um those will actually have a large amount of TVL. Like, if you are a liquidity-based bridge, you better be, like, integrating CCTP ASAP or sort of developing a product that's sort of like an RFQ, like, intense-based model. Just because over time, intense-based models are probably going to provide you with A, better execution, and B, faster execution. And so there's, like, literally no reason not to use an intense base bridge for a user. Is there increased latency associated with using an intense base bridge? Or is that what you're saying by like market makers slash inventory managers kind of facilitating this with instant settlement for you when they kind of like settle on the back back 
end, I guess. Yeah, I think if anything, there's probably like decreased latency and it's a lot more gas efficient um, just because there's a lot less calculations involved. So, and yeah, the, the latency comes, the latency risk or the additional latency is on the server and relayers and like a, a user bridging does not have to care about that. So perhaps like uh, a server will fund the liquidity and only after like one or two hours, they will get like the bridge funds on the source chain and then they will like manage that inventory however they want. But I think you're likely either a market maker who has an inventory already or you're probably probably borrowing those funds on the destination chain for like a really, really small fee, like 0.01% of like one bips or something, you know, for like one or two hours. Yeah, that was, that was great, Ren. I appreciate the insight there. It's definitely be something to watch with the rise of CCTP. I'm, I'm most interested uh, to see how that kind of impacts DYDX now with like the easy access bridging to get there. No excuses to not really see V4 volume pick up in kind of EV3. I need to check in on what those stats look like. I would also add in terms of CCTP, I think today, like bridging across like ecosystems from like Ethereum to Cosmos or Ethereum to Solana or vice versa, especially Solana back to Ethereum is not that pleasant of an experience. Like it's hard to find a bridge. Sometimes like there's a lot of slippage on that bridge. So I do think CCTP could sort of be the key unlock, especially for like Ethereum Solana, Solana Ethereum, or like Ethereum Cosmos, Cosmos Ethereum volume. Just cause like for your average user today is a pain in the ass to like try to find the correct bridge from like Ethereum to other ecosystems. But with CCTP, and most front ends will just integrate it and it will just be like your normal bridging experience. You know, click, you click, I want to transfer a thousand USDC from Ethereum to Solana and like CCTP just does it. Sure, there, there may be like a bit more like additional latency, but it just works, you know. Uh, so I do think CCTP is like a bit of a game changer and I wouldn't be surprised to see that the market share or the bridging volume driven by CCTP continue to increase just like forever, to be honest. I agree right. with that, Ren. Last thing I'll say about this, I sent a spreadsheet that like had a bunch of different bridges and routes to go from different chains. And it was from the last bull market. And I, one of my buddies was like, hey, I was trying to get over to Solana using that bridge sheet that you sent me, you know, two years ago. And I'm like, dude, like half those bridges are, are hacked, no longer active, have zero liquidity. Like I was like, I, I don't know what you're doing. Like this CCTP just makes that user experience so much better. There's no reason someone should have to find the newest bridge that actually has liquidity if you're coming back into crypto after a long hiatus. But uh, that's just my take. So definitely agree with you, Ren. All right, Zero X Research listeners, we're calling on you to join us for the premier institutional crypto conference in Europe's crypto capital, London, this March 2024. You're going to get to hear exclusive insights from industry trailblazers on things like leveraging DeFi protocols for institutional yield, tokenizing real world assets with instant settlement, navigating the evolving global regulatory landscape, integrating digital assets into banking and payments, or crafting institutional investment mandates with digital assets as the key focus. We'll also be featuring some big keynote speakers, including Melvin Dang, the CEO at QCP Capital, Mark Yusko, the CEO and managing partner of Morgan Creek Capital, and Stani Kluchin, the founder and CEO of Ave Companies. This is not an event you're going to want to miss. Seats are limited, so be sure to register today by hitting the link in the description and using promo code 0x20 to save 20% on your tickets. See you in London, the land of tasty pastries, and be sure to hit up Dan and I for a beer. Pibbles, you want to take uh, the next hot seat or cool throne? 
Yeah, so I have a hot seat, and it's Justin Sun, who has been exposed to a little over $200 million worth of hacks in the past two months. And um, I think it's really sus. And I I don't necessarily think these are real hacks. I kind of feel like they're inside jobs. And my like tinfoil hat says that these hacks are like him shuffling around money to take care of something. And maybe that relates to CZ. Maybe it doesn't. Um, but one thing that is super odd is with the the bridge hack last week and the Poloniex, if that's how you pronounce it, hack a few weeks ago, both of those immediately preceded a huge like billion dollar or like, yeah, probably a billion dollar twop on ETH futures prices and perps. And so like, it's like super inorganic, like the perps just happened to like put in a God candle the next day for both of these hacks. And then, so like, I'm, I'm curious if like he's actually hacking these himself, then pushing price up with perps and then offloading his stolen spot funds. But um, it, it's just a weird development and like, there's no concrete evidence to support either way. It's just, if you're in crypto this long and you have that much money, how are you exposed to this many hacks? all back to back. I think we're also been like conditioned to think, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. And if anything can't be malicious, it will be. So it's like definitely something to, that's worth considering. You flagged that chart of the, the East futures TWAP, which I thought was crazy. Like I, I, I the timing is definitely interesting uh, and the size is certainly there. Uh, but uh, I have no basis to say whether or not he did or did not do these things. But it, it's definitely suspect, and I'm, I'm glad you kind of flagged that. Because that, that, well, the reason why I found it interesting was like, oh, well, you know, we've been on a nice little ripper here, but if it's just from, you know, one person pumping the market and we all like to rely on the narrative of, no, it's because the Bitcoin ETF is coming. It's like, oh, maybe, the, maybe there's something a little deeper here. On the topic of like Justin Sun, obviously Tron is kind of his baby. I think one interesting thing that you could look for is before the start of the previous bull market, like what were people holding USDT on Tron doing? You know, were they like bidding ETH on Tron? Were they uh, bridging that USDT on Tron to like other ecosystems to like buy like other things? Because there's like a very sizable amount of USDT on Tron these days. If I'm not wrong, it's like, I want to say 67 billion. And you know, like the same like cycles like play out and like the same like user behavior plays out it definitely could be something interesting to watch because i'm of the opinion that like no one has any clue what goes on on chan and i still kind of believe it's just like a lot of of chinese people escaping capital controls but yeah it'll, it'll just be an interesting thing to like check out yeah to your point ryan i just Everyone always talks about like the USDC market cap is down only and USDT is up only. Like that's really sketchy to me. I think there's something more there that we'll probably see looking back, you know, in a couple of years, like what was actually going on here. But I guess that probably won't happen until we get another another doomsday moment similar to the ones we had in the past. So I guess I'll just sit on my hands until then. Yeah, no, that's a good flag as well. I think the USDC uh, market camp has finally bottomed, but I guess I'm biased since I already publicly tried to make a call, and I think I'm I think I'm down a few hundred million on that since that. But uh, Sam, why don't you give us your hot seat cool throughout this week? 
Yeah, this one's easy. Everyone's talking a lot of shit on crypto Twitter about uh, the new L2 blast from the Blur team. There's $570 million locked in that deposit contract controlled by a three of five multi-sig, and they don't actually have an L2 live, and they will not be unlocking those funds until February at the earliest, I believe. I mean, this is just complete comedy, in my opinion. If you look at all of the different L2s that have launched, launched over the past year, you've got you know, OP stack L2s, Linea, Polygon, ZK, EVM, ZK Sync Era, Scroll. You can combine the TVL of all of those new L2s and you're sitting at around the same TVL as what's in this, you know, deposit contract controlled by a 3.5 multi-sig with no product. Like I get the hype. Pac-Man's a great founder and uh, they've got great ambitions with like NFT perps and an NFT focused L2, kind of similar to Immutable, but more targeted at the more general purpose NFT landscape as opposed to gaming. But I don't know, man. I just, I don't really see why people are depositing into this. At this rate, you're hardly getting any airdrop or points or whatever with 570 mil unless you're like a giant whale. So as a retail participant, I just don't see that as positive EV. Um, Dan Robinson from Paradigm, who backed Blur, came out condemning the strategy. It's basically just a gamified L2 experiment, experiment with like, native yield generating tokens by like taking stuff locked in the bridge contract and applying staked ETH yield as well as like USDC yield from other spots. So I don't know about this one. I'll definitely try out blast once it comes out, but I'm not depositing in the near term. I think like definitely like the marketing is a little silly. And I think like the whole like points and referral thing is also like a bit overdone, but I think there's two points I want to make. First is that I think the rise of like yield bearing tokens are inevitable in crypto. Like everything that has a yield bearing version will become like a yield bearing version. And so eventually I think like the amount of state DF using DeFi or like uh, SDI over like normal DAI will just continue to increase. So I don't think it's like the worst thing in the world to take the E for like the die or stable coins locked in like the roll of like contract and depositing that for some yield since it's probably something that like crypto as a whole will drift towards to over the long term. Uh, obviously, like there's very questionable things surrounding like that bridge contract. Um, the three or five multi sig, four of them are like funded by the same wallet. But I think that's the first point I wanted to make. And the second point is that on the whole, like points and referral thing like sure it's very like ponzi like but i don't think i blame pac-man for doing it you know it's kind of what you have to do to stay competitive and lean into the fact that like crypto participants are just complete degens like if you were launching any protocol and you had like a competitor protocol you would definitely be running like a points and referral programs just because of like the benefit that gets you sure like there's probably like an extra boost because like this is like a paradigm invested l2 i don't think blast tbl would be that high if paradigm did not invest in it um but yeah i think it's just kind of like the natural evolution of things and i do think that it's possible that blast is open like a pandora's box right because like individuals from arbitrum and optimism did, did come out before saying that like this is something that they had thought about and explored um now you're letting like some sucker make the first move, let the community backlash like wash over, and then sooner or later when everybody wants like a yield generating token of everything, it kind of sets like a baseline for these alternative or these like other L2C events. You say, hey, okay, look, like Flash has been doing it for like 
six months, one year, you know, like we can generate, I don't know, an extra like a hundred million a year for the Dow. Um, we're going to do this. I, I honestly wouldn't be too surprised to see like one more large L2 do this in 2024. I think that's my take. Yeah, yeah, no, those are great points, Ren. And uh, on the multi-sig risk, like I, I, that just doesn't bother me from a risk standpoint. Uh, like you know, personally, like, like I'm like you, Sam. I, I won't be going over there until there's like apps over there that are interesting and fun to use. Um, but you know, you can't say that like the multi-sig has you bent out of shape and then go use Arbitrum, which has a safe a security council. Yeah, sure, they're doxed, but is that really the makes make or break for you? Or Optimism that has an anonymous multi-sig uh, that has bridge control. It's the exact same thing. It is a deposit contract. It is not just you're not just giving funds to a multi-sig. It's a deposit contract that is owned by a multi-sig. That is the same setup as a bridge contract owned by a multi-sig. But there's other like the thing I'm most bothered by is is certainly the the regulation and or the the marketing which is going to bring the regulation canning canon further pointed towards us. Like there's $500 million of this thing. So it's already on the radar. And then like on your website, you have things that say like you're pre-rich, right? When you like click the wallet page, it's like you're pre-rich. You have to connect a different wallet. You don't have any airdrop points yet. Like calling people pre-rich, horrible idea. How the invites work, that page like really just made it look like a Ponzi scheme. But I, I also really hate our industry's usage of the term Ponzi scheme like there's a very clear definition of a Ponzi scheme. And like, this is not that you're not paying the new guy with the old guy's money. Um, but it is still malicious marketing. And that, that just like really grinds my gears because we already have you know, people in con- half of Congress hates us. The SEC hates us. And it's like, do we really need to just give them more firepower? Like I would prefer not to. And I, I do think that L2s, if they want to meet these high valuations that they have, are going to have to figure out a way to bring in more revenue um, because somebody's going to slam the free their margin on on transaction fees to zero. And when that happens, like you're going to have to see if users care if they pay one cent or fifty cents for transactions. Which personally, don't think they will, but that's definitely a possibility. And if that if it does occur that users do care and they will use the cheapest chain, then like you as an L2, you can't be charging fifty cents, so you have to slam your margins to zero as well on transaction fees. So how else are you going to make revenue? And like, this could be a way. Um, but one thing I saw like kind of under discussed was they're going to use rebasing tokens to deliver the yield from the bridge to the token. Rebasing tokens, like they don't play well with most of DeFi. There's a reason why Lido staked ETH created wrapped staked ETH to have more of that um, exchange rate model where the value of the token increases as opposed to your uh, the amount of tokens that you own and hold in your wallet, right? With a rebasing token, you just hold the token. If I have one and I earn 5% over a year and now I have 1.05 in my wallet without any transactions and those don't play well with with many DEXs or lending markets a little more so, but um, like that creates extra development work. Uh, and so that's not necessarily great if you want to see blue chip DeFi protocols just forked onto your protocol. Then again, doesn't seem like that's what they're going for. They want to create their own little casino world. And, you know, if that like casinos exist in the real world, then there's no reason for them not to uh, exist in these these economies as well. So net net for me, it's just like disgusting marketing. But at the end of the day, like it's really not the risk assumptions aren't drastically different from other L2s today. And it's just uh, it's kind of a cool model of like depositing the underlyings. That's going to open up a whole new world of risk and 
how they go about managing that will be very interesting to watch because you'd have to think there was some intent-based architecture, not only to uh, cue in on the buzzwords and pump that valuation, but also because there is going to be some sort of uh, liquidity gap, right? If everybody wants to exit their, their withdraw their ETH immediately and it's all deposited as staked ETH, and then there's this like withdrawal gap where you have to wait through. So I imagine they'll put some market makers on the back end to kind of meet that meet that gap. And, um, you know, obviously they have to take a cut as well. So it'll be interesting to see how that model develops for sure. The only other thing I wanted to add here was the valuation numbers. So Avo launched their pre-futures and it's currently trading uh, at 4.5 billion FDV, uh, which is kind of ballpark for what you'd expect really, because uh, if you compare that to some of the L2s that exist today, Arbitrum's at a 10.1 billion, Optimism's at a 7.3 billion, uh, and Matic or Polygon is at a 6.6 billion. So it's like, it's kind of ballpark up there, maybe some risk adjustment downwards as well, and as well as like, you know, the fact that the the L2 doesn't actually exist. Uh, so all in all, it's a pretty insane number, but I don't know, I guess if you were just going off of comparative valuations, it's at least ballpark where you'd expect it to be, for better or for worse. Do you all know if uh, Blast is going to be ZK or Optimistic? No, as far as I know, they haven't uh, rolled out any any information about their execution environment at all. Like it's, which is also scary, right? Because it's like there's there's literally nothing that we know, and there's somehow five hundred million in this in this contract. That's mind blowing. It really really is. They're gonna pull a play out of the Synapse playbook and pretend like they're innovating on the uh, the design of the L two, and then they're just gonna one click deploy a conduit L two on launch day. I think that's actually a good take, but I don't know. Like NFTs just have not worked on L2s. Like simply they have not. Like if you look at Immutable X volume, if you look at Arbitrum Optimism volume, like they're non-fungible tokens. Getting those things bridged over is tough. Getting oracles that actually work is extremely tough. Maybe because Blur has this blend product and NFT marketplace, there's more that they can do from an oracle design standpoint, but I don't know. They're definitely embarking on an extremely ambitious journey. I also feel like they got to worry about the whole two token thing, right? Now that there's Blast and Blur, it's like, are they going to try to keep those separate? Or are they going to effectively kind of meld into the same thing in the long term? And if so, it's kind of hard to say, well, you probably should have just used one token um, because now you have like your equity split between two different protocols that are ultimately the same protocol. I don't know. It seems a little, that's a question mark for me. I would like to see a little bit more about how those two tokens really align. Because if you think about uh, a, another recent two-token project, which was Velodrome, then launching Aerodrome, Aerodrome hasn't done great, hasn't done terrible. Um, and Velodrome's honestly kind of in the same ballpark there. It's not. It's definitely not a one-to-one comparison here, but it is kind of something to consider. Like, instead of, if you're going to launch something new, like when do you have to draw the line between using the same token and, and launching a new token? Well, that's probably a good jumping over point to switch over to my cool throne and then we'll end the uh, episode on some governance updates uh but in my cool throne this week i've got Gito, aka the lido and the flashbots of solana which is a great tagline uh, but they announced their airdrop so it broke down to 10 percent of the total supply will be used for the airdrop and that is uh the, in total, they're going to have 34% of the total supply as community, and then the other 24% of that 34% is going to be for the Dow Treasury. Uh, so net-net, it's 66% for the team, 34% for the community, which is higher than 
you would hope if you were like a community allocation maximalist. Uh, but to me personally, I'm, I'm pretty excited about this. Like if you just like zoom out and think about this, they've built this great product. People love it. People are using it. You know, a large portion of Solana validators are running the Jito client. Uh, the staking, uh, liquid staking protocol, or excuse me, the liquid staking token, Jito Sol, has exploded in exponential growth up to like 6.7 million Sol and TVL. Uh, and they're just saying, hey, we're going to slice off 34, 34% of our business and just hand it to strangers. Uh, so, you know, largely like that is already insane. Uh, and so to me, like the 66-34 split doesn't really bother me. Um, that that 64% is split up between uh, about 40% for team and investors. It's going to invest over a certain vesting period. We don't really have specifics around the the, the lock period there. And then 25% of that is going to a foundation for like long-term ecosystem development, basically. Um also kind of like this as well. It, it, to me, this looks a lot like the Arbitrum token launch. Like it's, uh, they did about a 10% airdrop and a large allocation to the foundation, a uh, large allocation to the DAO, and then team and investors vest over four years. To me, like it's honestly not too dissimilar. Um, I think that, that this could has a good potential to lead to Solana users getting a couple grand airdrop to them. And that's on top of the Pith and the Bonk airdrops as well. You're starting to get a little bit of this wealth effect going on uh, from these airdrops over in the Solana ecosystem. Now, you can't really bring this up without mentioning that I'm sure the FTV on this thing is going to be batshit insane. Uh, and that's kind of similar pointing back to Arbitrum, right? They launched with this like 0.1 uh, or 10% of total supply circulating and you know, they have the highest FDV of an L2 today. Like you have to imagine over the long term as they issue new tokens that those are going to kind of bleed somewhere towards the middle of, of market cap and FDV. Uh, but curious if you guys have any takes on Gito and their new airdrop. Yeah, um, I would start off to say that the narrative is like definitely there. Lido plus flash Rods is a pretty killer tagline. And in addition to that, Gito so charges like an annual management fee equal to 4% of total reports. Um, and so that fee is applied to both staking rewards and also MEV revenue. And if you told someone that there was a flashbot token where like 4% of like validated tips that goes to like the MEV boost relay is driven back to like the flashbot style or the company, I think that token would just completely set. Granted, Solana, uh, MEV on Solana is much, much smaller than Ethereum. Um, I think like there was like a 300 so tip the other day in one of the blocks and like people were rejoicing that it's like one of the largest validator tips um but that that narrative is definitely still there and i think another thing to keep note of in terms of like the token allocation and how 25 percent is being held by the foundation for what i would presume would be like long-term partnerships and i think 24.3 percent is going to be held in the dow treasury um for dow to do dow things for lack of a better term um i think you kind of need so much and you should only be giving 10% of it to the community today because liquid staking is still so small on Solana. On Solana, I think liquid staking is like 2% of total soul stake. Whereas you compare that to Ethereum, I think that number is closer to like, I want to say 60 to 70%. So there's like a lot more room for this like liquid staking war on Solana to play out. And so you really do kind of need that um, sizable treasury in order to compete in that war. Granted, like it's a bit easier these days with Lido. I'm not sure if they pulled out already or are debating putting out, but for all intents and purposes, Lido might as well be dead on Solana. They're like completely aligning with Ethereum, but 
yeah, like with other validator clients coming out, Marinate like still being the largest TVL protocol on Solana, I do think you kind of need a lot of those incentives in order to remain competitive in this liquid staking war. I'm pretty bearish on this, to be honest. Love Gito Soul, the team. I've met them personally. I love like what they're doing and they've been super innovative. Love the the meme of Flashbots plus Lido, but I think ultimately people look to Ethereum tokens to get a sense of how high things can go. Like if you own Bonk, you're looking at Pepe and Shib. If you're looking at MarginFi, you're looking at Ave and Compound. Like that's just naturally how it goes. Um, so I expect the same here. And Lido's FDV is two and a half billion. So I expect this thing to launch at a ridiculously high FDV. And I honestly think down only is more likely than up only. Um, that's just my surface level take. I also think that with Fire Dancer coming out, we have no idea how that imp like impacts uh, Gito Soul's business model. And I think this token's going to launch and no one's going to think about that. They're just going to click buy or sell. Um, but that'll be like a serious headwind moving forward. Yeah, I agree with you there. Like I, I also love the Judo team. I think they're awesome. I think their product is great. But if I'm looking at this strictly as a speculative investor, I have no interest in buying this token because it's low float, just like all the other Curse Solana tokens. I think the best chart you can look to for any hint at Judo price action is to look at Marinade, which has very similar token allocation. And uh, if you look at that chart, it's not awesome. Um, but then like, if you consider like the other tokens, like Oxy, Maps, Serum, even Pith, like none of these are really great for people to buy in secondary markets. They're great deals for Kyle Salami and the rest of the VCs and they can get their bag and that's fine. But me as a secondary market participant, I'm, I'm not gonna play this, but I will collect an airdrop, that's fun. And thank you for that. But I have no interest in doing anything else besides that. Like Kyle, Kyle Salami sitting at 91 million points. The next, uh, the person second on the leaderboard has like 20 million points. For context, I have like 21,000 points. So, you know, like there's like a pretty big like <laughs> difference between me and Kyle Salami. Um, I'm not sure what their airdrop distribution will look like, but for my sake, in a selfish way, I hope it's like not just like depending on how many points you have. And I think another another thing that Sam brought up was actually Fire Dancer client. At first, I was thinking in terms of like, will Fire Dancer's like client be like more competitive with like uh, Gito Souls client? But another thing is that Fire Dancers should theoretically allow the Solana network to process like a shitload more TPS. Um, and how Gito works is that like it introduces like this additional latency to the Gito relayer. I think um off the top of my head, that additional latency I wanna say is like two hundred microseconds. Don't quote me on that. But I wouldn't be too surprised if Solana is able to support like a much higher TPS, then Gito also needs to sort of lengthen like or increase the latency in order to like run their like MEV solution effectively. I don't know whether that's like going to be a problem or not but just something to think about while like a fire dancer is being worked on but that's not going to be a problem until h2 2024 um and then in h1 2024 we're going to get like a baby version of fire dancer which has a really weird name that i don't remember i think it's like frank and dancer or something
Yeah, the only like the only other thing I want to add there is I don't know if it's totally fair. I definitely get your sentiment with the the token distribution and how that's negatively impacted Solana projects, but I don't know if it's fair to compare the business model of of Gito to like Oxy or Maps that were like just purely FBS manipulated toys, basically. Um, but I, I definitely get your sentiment there, and like honestly, my I bring it back to Arbitrum, like the token distribution like isn't too too different. I think the, the major difference was a larger allocation went to the Arbitrum DAO, um, which is sort of like a meaningless thing in a lot of ways, but it's also, you know, that's just kind of like a way to appease the community. But like, you could kind of argue the same thing, right? Like, uh, let's, let's just round it off and say there's about a billion ARB circulating today and 10 billion that can be emitted over time. A large chunk of that is going to be the team and investor uh, allocations that vest uh, over a four-year period with a one month cliff. And then another chunk of that is going to be about, about three or three and a half billion of that is, is the Dow treasury. So like as the Dow is spending money, it is increasing the circulating supply and bringing that circulating supply value closer to the FDV, probably pulling them both towards the middle there. And so like that would lend me to believe that if your, your basis is the distribution and the allocation, like, are you excited about Arbitrum as a token at all? Or are you thinking kind of the same thing applies there? Yeah, I'm also not interested in Arbitrum token, so that's where I said. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Definitely a good point there, but um, maybe a good time to jump over to governance updates. Sam, what do you think? Yeah, let's do it. You want to kick it off? Yeah, I'll get us moving there. So uh, on governance updates this week, you know, we always got to talk about some of these things we've been following for a, a little bit of time now, but I think it's important just to kind of see them out to their completion. So Prop 848 over in the Cosmos Hub ecosystem cut issuance by about 30% by lowering the max inflation rate. Uh, now it's about to, it's uh, set at 10%. So Definitely a, uh, a an interesting development here. You know, Effort Capital on our team is is our local Cosmos Hub expert, and uh, you know he was really vocal about this being a net positive for the ecosystem. Just because if you're overpaying for security, at some point you have to say like, what is the point of this? Like, what is the I don't know. Maybe if minimum viable issuance is is the right word there of like finding that sweet spot of how can I get economic security uh, without kind of overcompensating for that and just you know inflating away the the token. Of course, there's obviously the whole discussion around is token issuance a cost, and there's even a new one around this. Uh, not really new. Toy's been saying this for a while, but uh, Anna Toy is a, a proving to be a firm believer that economic security as a whole is a meme, and we can always just rely on social consensus uh, around node operators that have a business reason to care about the truth. Um, so it's kind of like this whole unfolding conversation here. But net net, property for eight has cut. Atom issuance. The market seemed to like it um, when the prop was officially passed. Of course, you know we've kind of retraced its market as a whole since then, uh, so it's hard to really see how that shapes out. But it will be interesting to watch the market's reaction to uh, the newly, the new atom with lower inflation. Inflation, and I'm also really curious to see if this will kind of inspire any sort of chain reaction to other Cosmos chains saying, "Hey, maybe we are over issuing and we actually don't need this." You know, when we talk to uh, the Akash founder, Greg Asuri, not too long ago on the podcast, he was actually being like, I, I thought he had great takes. He was like, yeah, as a business, like we have to think about uh, the money, like our security costs and our security budget. And um, that's definitely something that's on the forefront of his mind. So I'd love to actually get him back on and kind of have that conversation. But curious if you guys think anything about the Adam uh, inflation cut. I think one interesting point of this vote was that it was like, 
by far the most contentious vote in Cosmos like history. I think there was a larger voter turnout for this prop than the Adam 2.0 vote. And I've never seen so much Adam drama on Twitter, both from like validators, node operators within the Cosmos ecosystem, but also like just normal CT profiles that like just normally don't give a shit about Adam. So there was definitely like a lot of like buzz on the timeline and it really did come down to the wire right i think like probably like a day before the vote was going to close it was like still like no by like a pretty wide margin and then last minute like a lot of people came through and then it was like maybe like 39 percent for like 36 against and then like six percent veto um so yeah i i do agree on the point of that i feel like there's going to be positive like cascading effects for the rest of the ecosystem just because most cosmos tokens have traditionally had pretty high inflation and maybe they have been using like atom inflation as like a benchmark for their own tokens inflation and now they don't have to be as competitive given that atoms issuance or like inflation is lower and so they themselves can lower the token emissions too so yeah i think we'll just see how it goes i know jayquan's wilding a bit and he's proposing to split chain um and then launch like a new token called adam one but that guy's a bit of a nutter agree with that i can actually roll this one into a another governance update so dydx is launching the incentives program uh 20 million dollars over six months it's going to be a closed source system with chaos labs kind of like retroactively rewarding different actions and then like the community will be able to pass uh, the analysis that Chaos Labs conducted, and then those tokens get distributed. But nevertheless, it's fixed at $20 million USD, so the token price is variable. That'll be decided at the time of the uh, the distribution of the incentives. I think this is like absolute make or break moment for the Cosmos, like 100%, because you've got Adam just now reducing inflation, you've got Noble USDC, and you've got DYDX incentives kicking off. If this isn't enough to get people over to that godforsaken ecosystem like i literally don't know what will so <laughs> i am uh pouring one out for david after you know two three weeks from now sorry effort capital if if this doesn't pan out well but definitely rooting for the cosmos folks but it's uh it's been a tough tough journey yeah i think it's uh because they have great tech and there's no doubt about that and i think it's a lot dydx moving over there speaks volumes to that it's really just a thesis for me is I think it's becoming more and more obvious now that app chains are a great end state and just not a great place to start, right? There's a lot of other complications that you have to deal with. If you just want to build an app, just go build it on a generalized smart contract chain. Um, just go build yourself a, a smart contract system on a one single shard over in Solana and, and take it from there. But even like the app chain thesis, as a mature product, you know what I mean? Like DYDX is as mature as it gets in terms of app specific stuff goes. So they're not able to pull this one off, and I, I just think the app chain thesis is dead. But producer, please don't short clip that one. I don't know, man. Uh, your favorite DA layer just launched that promised me a world of a million chains, so we shall see. Uh, but moving on in the governance update section, the Arbitrum Stip back fund has passed. So this is a vote to. So we rewind a little bit. There was a fifty million dollar uh, short term incentive program or Stip uh, proposal that got passed and funded. And that is going to run through the end of the year. There was a lot of good candidates on there that had like 
just the way the voting worked, they were like approved, but didn't receive funding basically. And so all of those summed up to another 20 million in incentives. And the Dow has approved a snapshot vote to uh, have a back fund and fund them with these tokens as well. And it is up on tally being voted on chain right now. Uh, generally, if it passes on snapshot, it will also pass on um, tally as well and move on chain and actually be executed. So the is interesting for me, I think, Blockworks research as a whole here. We are delegates, so full disclosure, we voted no on this one. And sometimes I agree, sometimes I disagree on a personal level with our decisions, as, as we all do as, on this team. Um, and personally, this one, I, I was for it. It's I think we needed to kind of just take a step back here and say, all right, you know, we just blasted out 50 million in incentives. Like, let's take a step back uh, and actually look at, at how these are being used, right? Like, if it's just a short-term incentive game, then... Like, I just like really struggle to think that that's like good use of funds. Like even at the end of the day, you know, it's 50 million ARB, like that's not a huge number, um, but it's also not nothing either, right? That's just blasting $50 million of sell pressure if everybody is just going to farm and dump these, um, which admittedly is probably what's going to happen. If it was like gun to, gun to, gun to your head, make a decision about what's going to happen with people that are farming, um, you know, these re, like essentially fee rebates, it's probably going to get farmed and dumped. And it's a question of like what happens after that. Like, do those users stick around Arbitrum and continue, um, you know, continue participating in the ecosystem? How many net new users did that bring in? Personally, I think I would like to see an analysis around that before you go funding more protocols and more projects. Then um, I've also like seen some posts in the forums about how people are already accusing projects of like not using funds the way they said that they were going to use funds. I, have, I haven't looked into the legitimacy of any of these claims, but if you increase the number of protocols you get that you're going to fund with, with incentives, like the likelihood of that happening obviously increases as well. And if that is happening, like that is, you know, that's kind of another thing to have to deal with when it comes to funding stips in this manner. But net net at the end of the day, like stips are probably just like, user like another round of user airdrops going about it in kind of a weird way weird way because at the end of the day you know you're just distributing out more tokens to people that are using the chain so i don't know net net don't love it but curious if you you guys have any different thoughts there uh i think just some random things to add like some of the largest winner of this background proposal are gains they're going to receive 4.5 million dollars stargate is going to receive 2 million uh wormhole is going to receive 1.8 million uh I think one thing that I'd like to see in such future like incentive programs is for it to be a lot more skewed towards helping like the smaller protocols. I still feel like a bit iffy on whether like say GMX should have received seven million out of like the fifty million or been like the initial stip funding. And I feel like all of this all of these grants would be much better suited to sort of like incentivize the growth on a smaller protocol than like large established protocols. I'm not sure what the best mechanism to do that is, whether that's like limiting like each protocol to like 5% of like the total like ARB that's being allocated to this program or like some like weighted thing, like depending on what type of protocol you are. But yeah, in general, I, I think it would make sense for the next time any L2 does something similar. Yeah, I'd like to see more lock tokens. Um, I don't really know the best design either, and but it, I just feel like it makes a lot of sense to 
like give people a number on their screen that's like, all right, this is how much RB you just got over the three months. And now if you're active over the next three months, these things vest linearly until you're not active or something along those lines. That's not just like take these tokens and dump them on some decks and then leave our ecosystem when the, the stips dry up. So it's going to take a lot longer. Obviously, we need to like look at the data and actually analyze it. Like Dan, you, you actually put something in Slack earlier today that was pretty interesting on like unique users versus addresses. I'm not sure if you can kind of give us a TLDR of what you found there. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I tweeted that chart out earlier today as well. So just looking at uh, base, ZK Sync, Optimism, and Arbitrum, uh, and looking at their total user counts and kind of seeing how those have progressed. And sorry, they're not, I should be a little more clear. And when I say user, I was specifically referring to like the total unique number of active addresses within a given period. Um, so on a weekly basis, ZK Sync right now is seeing about a million unique addresses. Um, and for the other L2s, it kind of varies. Uh, recently, Arbitrum has uh, kind of had a run-up in total number of active addresses, and it's right at that same number, about a million per week. And this largely probably, the, the timelines line up with um, with the incentive program. So there is some credence to say, okay, this is like one data point that's you know pro-stips, like, all right, bringing users back onto the chain. Uh, it's definitely kind of the whole point of this, you know, hopefully they don't farm and dump them. I feel like that's like phase two, but step one is get, get them back on chain. Um, and the other piece of that is like, okay, active addresses alone can be very easily gamed. Uh, it's a bit of a gimmicky metric, especially when you start comparing across different execution environments. So like an EVM compared to uh, Solana compared to a like uh, UTXO model like Bitcoin, very hard to compare a number of active addresses because they all kind of mean different things. There's only one message dot sender on an EVM chain, whereas Solana, you can have multiple signers of a single transaction. So you'd have like two active addresses attached to a single transaction. Not really what you want when you're trying to get this like number of users at the end of the day. Uh, and, and UTXO models are quite similar. You can have like a thousand UTXOs being used to send by one person. So it's really hard to like cross compare these, but because these are all EVM based L2s, it makes it a little bit easier. Um, and so another like metric you can kind of layer on to saying, all right, well, we see this huge run up in total unique active addresses, but what is the percentage of new addresses within that total user set? So a new address is just uh, an address where their first transaction occurred in the period you're looking at. And so just taking that as a percentage of the total addresses. So ZK Sync is a heavily airdropped chain that's like not really up for debate, to be honest. That's that's very much what's happening over there. Um, and because of that, you're seeing a ton of active addresses. But each week, they've just had down-only percentages of new addresses. And so right now, they're about 5% of their weekly addresses are, are new addresses that have not previously used the chain. And so when you zoom out and kind of put some qualitative analysis around that and kind of look what's happening on chain, it starts to make sense, right? Like you have this highly... Uh, airdropped chain where the top eight dApps by TVL are all DEXs, right? They, they all do the same thing. They're probably all forks of each other. Um, and so there's really no net new apps that are doing things like even base with Frentech. That was like a net new app that brought in a bunch of users. Um, you really just, so it kind of like starts to make sense in the context of you have a ton of users on a heavily airdrop chain where there's really no net new apps. And then you see this, this, the data behind that where you're not really only bringing on about 5% of net new users. It's like, okay, you know, that starts to all line up. And again, this is this can definitely be a gamed metric just because 
users is a very strong word that's like kind of relates to a person where an address like one user one person can have infinite number of addresses and then there's a very low switching cost to using a new address so it's kind of why these can be easily gamed but to bring it back to arbitrum so arbitrum seen that run up into about a million weekly uh active addresses and the percentage of new users of that set is about 20 so about four times higher than what you're seeing on zk sync which is kind of like our base case of a heavily airdropped far, uh, chain with no net new apps. So it is kind of a good thing to see uh, active addresses running up and the number of net new addresses still kind of being at a, that 20% mark. And just for context, that that 20% mark is where Arbitrum, Optimism, and Base all kind of sit. Uh, so ZK Sync is really the outlier here at, at that lower 5%. So I think there is like some steps that that kind of or some data points that prove to like steps are net positive. Um, it's just a question of for, for how long, right? I mean, they, they're designed to be short term, but like if you can get some extra long term incentive and, and increased activity, then that's really the the ultimate win here. I think. Yeah, definitely agree. I'm, thanks for sharing that too. That was like very helpful, and I like that data point just because. Yeah, it's it's going to be tough and interesting too to like look back in like three, four, or five weeks after January thirty first or whenever the incentives go through, and like seeing whether or not activity falls off because I do know Optimism's had problem with that. You know, like when OP incentives are live on synthetics, everyone's trade on synthetics, and then as soon as they stop, it's like all right, let's go over to the next farm. So <laughs> I guess I guess we'll just have to wait and see. But I think that's a pretty good place to call it. I don't know if anyone else has any closing thoughts, and Dan Pibbles. All good. All right. Thanks again for coming on, guys. (laughs) All right. Cool, cool. Uh, Thanks for coming on, guys. Really appreciate it. Uh, Always nice when you guys take like an hour, hour and a half out of your day to do these. It's always a lot of fun. So I guess we will see everyone back here next week. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode. We hope you really enjoyed it. Wanted to take one more moment to remind you guys about our upcoming 2024 Digital Asset Summit in London this March. Seats are limited, so be sure to hit the link in the description and use promo code 0x20 to save 20% off on your ticket. We'll see you in London. Be sure to hit us up if you plan on attending.